Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 359, and I had a conversation with Mariam Abul-Fazli. Mariam is an Iranian-American storyteller, coach, educator, and over the past 20 years, she built her career as an international economic and political development professional working in Eurasia and the Middle East to assist in, quote, improving the political and economic realities of marginalized communities, focusing specifically on the growth that individuals must undertake to lead their classrooms, companies, families, communities, and government, unquote. She's also a storyteller, having done Moth Story Slam in Nashville and Story District in Washington, D.C. Her book, Red Red, is out now. We had an amazing conversation. She's incredibly bright and she helped facilitate that humongous protest in Nashville after the Covenant shooting. We talk about her history, her life story, some of the incredible situations she's found herself in when she worked in Afghanistan, and just what a story. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to you hearing it. Check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests in the show. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. My most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also, please check out my relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet? with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube at Are We There Yet? podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Be well. Take care. Be kind. Be love. Lift each other up. And let's get into this. Here we go. Mariam Abul-Fazli, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you so much. It's amazing to be talking with you today. We have a mutual friend in Ruby, who is an amazing human being. Yes, she's yeah. she I've been friends for 400 years or 30, something like that. <laughs> she was one of my first guests on Hey Human. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, she's, she's wonderful. Yeah, and I had seen her posting about you and immediately followed you because anyone that she is championing, I'm behind 100%. So. Wow, that's quite an endorsement. Yeah, she, yeah, we're, she's wonderful. She's, she's someone I called in the middle of organizing that rally. Um, so just to tell you, yeah, I just needed, I needed that. I needed that trust and that friendship to help me with this. She's also got a very grounding presence, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Despite being a celebrity, practically she's, she's, yeah, she's very down to earth. Yeah. I, I would say she is a celebrity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, to yeah. me, she's Ruby, but yeah, she's a celebrity and it's, you'd think that would change a person and it, didn't it? In fact, it probably for me it feels like it's grounded her even more in some ways mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. what matters to her. Yeah, yeah, she's a she's a light for sure. All right, let's get into you. Okay. I like to start these out with talking about where did you grow up, uh, what shaped you as a kid. Let's get in that first. Oh wow! Um, I was born and raised in Nashville. I was born in um, Baptist Hospital, uh, which is now St. Thomas. It's on. Um, it's down. Uh, West End um, in 1978. I call myself a revolutionary, maybe. Um, my parents, my mom was about seven months pregnant with me when she left Iran. Uh, it was martial law. 
on the ground when they were leaving on the plane. Um, she was pacing the aisle to make sure to, they didn't know if they would take off or not because of the martial law. And they did finally. And a few months later, I was born in this little town, this little sleepy town in Nashville, Tennessee, where she couldn't get any of the food ingredients she needed, any of, you know, uh, there was, there wasn't much at all. Um, so I would say a lot of things shaped me growing up a lot of layers and complexity, but one of them is, um, I come from people that create a lot out of nothing. Having Um, that background, having parents who fled, uh, a, a war zone. Basically, a revolution. A revolution. It was yeah. a war, but it was revolution. Yeah. I, I call that a war against the people. That right. Was, um. So for me, right. for me, it feels like war because it's uprooting people, everything they've known. It, it's creating. I mean, you can go into it obviously and and talk about what that revolution was. But I have other friends who also who are a little bit older than you are who remember fleeing and having, you know, bullets flying past their heads as they're desperately trying to get to airplanes and get out. And I I think that there is this sense in America, we don't as much as we don't get along or we fight our politicians, it's not that. And I don't know that people can wrap their heads around it and and understand what it is like to flee that sort of situation. So what was that like hanging sort of around the family to have your, your mom, especially being pregnant with you? That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And they say a lot happens when you're in utero, you know, a lot happens in your, in your formation. Um, I think my mom is a very powerful human being and she just worked really hard to bring her brothers and sisters here very methodically over the years as it became clear that the revolution was not what people thought it would be. So her sister and her brother and their kids and everyone. And so I grew up with that migration into our home as people got onto their feet and then out into their homes nearby. And so community family was really, really essential to what I understood about living life uh, and what you, and generosity and what you give to, to those that, that um, you are committed to. I was raised with that and I'm still raised with that. You know, I was raised with my cousins and, and around me today, I have many cousins and I have all their third generation around me. Um, it's pretty remarkable. Um, so my son grows up with his cousins in the same way that I did. Um, so yeah, a real fostering of community, a real, com- a real commitment to that. As you know, Iranians are, take a lot of pride in hosting and having people in their homes and providing people with the most lavish food and, you know, and all that stuff. And, and I was raised with that as well. And I, and I, I kind of, a lot of my identity is in that too. Um, and then I was raised in Nashville in the eighties. And so there's stuff there too. There's, it makes you such an interesting person because you know, Dolly Parton is part of my culture, you know, Iranian music and Gugush is part of my culture. I remember growing up listening to some old, old country music that was on the radio during that time and like uh, going to Percy Priest Lake and um, going camping throughout Tennessee because my parents loved camping with all of our cousins and all of our, you know, and so I have this like Tennessee layer in me with, with being Iranian. And we were very much making a path that wasn't known 
you know, immigration and 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 um, immigrant communities were not that big at that moment, and they weren't set, uh, certainly in in Nashville. And so, everyone there weren't services and centers and organizations and translators and interpreters and and Nolensville Road. No, like there was no food, nothing, you know. And so, Nolensville Road. <laughs> you know, what I mean, now we Inter- now can like go international. Yeah, yeah. Like if I want to go make warma sabzi. Or Fesenjun or whatever, I can just go there and get all the ingredients. And I keep coming back to food because that's so much about the central part of how we gather. So yeah, I had this Nashvilleian background. You know, my best friends uh, were local Tennesseans, and you know, we would. It was just it was so layered in this beautiful way. And I mean, and then there was the other stuff around that. Like um, I was considered brown. Um, and it, I don't know, it depends on who you talk to that sees me that way. But here I was considered the other growing up. So people would say like, where are you from in elementary school? Uh, when I talked like this, uh, but to them, it was where, where are you from? And so I, I was really confused. I'm like, I'm from here, just like you, but I didn't look, I mean, like them, uh, whatever that might be. And so that sense of being outside did exist as well. That did did um, was part of uh, forming my identity as well. Did you grow up in a faith? No. <laughs> oh. So as you know, a lot of Iranians are very secular. Like I think it's the most secular Muslim country in the Middle East. Uh, uh, so I did not grow up knowing about Ramadan. I did not grow up knowing about any of those uh, religious holidays. I grew up very culturally Iranian. Um, so we definitely celebrated the new year, which is March 21st. And we gave gifts and we visited all the Iranians in the community and we bought new clothes and all that stuff. But I didn't know about Islam very much at all. Pre-1978-ish, it was the metropolis. It looked, could have been New York. It was, you know, women doctors and people yeah. driving around and it was medicine and science and art and culture. Some of the most beautiful art and culture of the old art and culture. Yeah. I mean, my mom, you, I have pictures of her going to her American accounting firm in um, a mini skirt and, and high little go-go boots. And my dad studied here and went back to work for an American architecture firm there, building bridges and infrastructure. So the relationship was really high, and it was it was a really fun place for Americans to be and American companies to be, which is just I think very really shocking for a lot of people. But even today, I feel like I mean, as you've seen in those protests that happen and are happening in Iran, you see that religion just never really took hold the way that the leaders had hoped it would. And I think there's a lot of lessons there of, of shoving things down um, a population's throat. But the idea was to really indoctrinate people into this really religious society. And all you've seen is just kind of a mass rejection of that. There are, they've created probably more atheists in that country per capita than anywhere else. You know, I mean, even here, there aren't you know, even if you're not going to church or you don't have a religion, you don't necessarily declare atheism, but there, they're really much, I think Iranians have that. They're just this lack of this kind of rejection of religion for whatever reasons. There could be lessons there for people in America too. Well, yeah, we talk about that. I mean, if you, if you're, if you're trying to, if we look at our legislator and you're trying to kind of um, legislate social norms 
into into a society like they are in Tennessee with gay rights or drag shows or trans youth not getting the medications they need or abortion rights abortion rights right like women should stay at home women should have babies no matter when or where they are at they should just have babies if you're trying to regulate social norms and the way that society evolves or doesn't evolve that i i generally just think that backfires because society is this dynamic thing right it's an organism of its own it's it's breathing it's vibrant it's growing it's evolving and you cannot legislate it <laughs> you just got to let it breathe and i think Iran's the lesson in that as you were growing up the sense of what is justice and what is right and wrong and how people are to be treated and that sort of thing was that something that hits you early on as a kid yeah that's a really good question i mean the personal the political was personal from day 1 of my life right because of something happening politically i was experiencing something personally and which at the time might seem like oh too much for a little kid or whatever but ultimately was a, a real gift a real gift in understanding my you know who we all are as individual agents in in a society and in a democratic country but so the so the political was always personal and so i was really aware of what politics with a big p with a capital p can do to one's life and i feel like that's not necessarily the case for a lot of americans there's a major major uh distance between politics with a big p what happens in dc or what happens in our capital and what happens in my life like and that's intentional i'm sure but it's also just been like for a while it was like we were on autopilot things were working things were working for a while and now that they're not we're like wait a second you can tell me when i can have a family like when did how did you get into my body and into my budget and into my mortgage payment like how did you, you know and so only now are we feeling like oh man what they do over there impacts what i like how i wake up in the morning and it and it was like that kind of for me from the beginning so how yeah. did your family react to you understanding that at such a young age they were the ones who put it in us so it was it was expected and i mean this is the 80s like i'm i'm gen x like we don't talk about we don't we don't talk to our parents about our feelings like they do now you know so it was just like something you're absorbing and you're getting i'm not i'm not consciously articulating this i'm not writing essays about it you know it's it was a different time you just that's just who you are and that's just what's growing in you and with you i remember watching khomeini uh on the tv when we were on we were in seaside florida which is where everyone vacations now and i remember watching khomeini on tv i think declaring the end of the iran iraq war or something or when he died one of those moments and that like we're on a beach vacation <laughs> you know what i mean so it's just it was just expected and and political discussion was expected as was all kinds of discussion i mean it was we we are a discourse heavy culture for sure did you make plans once you graduated from high school to go into a career where you were going to be the voice of the people um <laughs> i i wrote my college essays about bridging the my inside world with my outside world and bridging worlds in general because when you're raised like that where there's a world in your home and there's a world outside and they are really different 
because Nashville in the eighties was very different from this. Like Tehran was bumping when my parents left. Like it was, it was a proper, like you said, metropolis. Like it was the big city and Nashville was the village for my parents, which is interesting for people because they're thinking it's the other way around, right? Like you're coming from the Middle East and it's backwards, but actually Tehran was really, really, it was really, really modern and cosmopolitan. So, so what I was in my, and then, and then we were speaking a different language, we we're eating a different food. We were talking about different things and then outside was a different world. And so, yeah, I was just like, I always felt kind of like an interpreter between different worlds. And so I wrote my college essays about that. Like I wanted to be in international relations. I knew that for sure. And I wanted to be able to bridge these worlds that I didn't feel were bridged for me. Like I was the bridge, you know what I mean? But it didn't, there wasn't that bridging. I mean, for me, so that was, um, that was my intent and, and basically has been my purpose ever since, you know, which is cool to know that really young and and go after that pretty, um, pretty avidly. What made you decide that other than family, obviously you have tight family roots that keep you grounded to there, but there's stuff going on all over this country and certainly all over the world. What kept you rooted in Nashville? Do you think? I left. I was gone for 20 years. I grew up in Nashville. I just had FOMO for the world. I was like, there is a world out there and I want to be part of it. I want to be part of it. So 1997, I left. I went to school in Atlanta. I got an internship in DC. And then I studied abroad in in, uh, Spain, in Barcelona. And then I went to do a year in London at the London School of Economics. And then after that, I went back, I went to DC. And then I quickly went to Afghanistan for the UN in 2003. Wow. What was that like? That was one of the best years of my life, 2003, 2004. Uh, We had just come back in. Everyone thought we were going to save them. Uh, They were really tired of the Taliban, clearly. It was full of hope. It was a time full of hope. Um, It was a time of chaos. There was barely any electricity. There was no internet. We were, you know, 10 years later when we, well, actually 20 years later when we left, a lot of infrastructure was there. Expats lived, uh, you know, a, a pretty um, resourced life. But when we first went there, there wasn't anything. And so um, there were many days in the in the office, which was a ministry that I worked in, um, a ministry of ministry as in department, like Ministry of Irrigation, Water Resources, and Environment, um, where there was no electricity. And so, yeah, that was one of the best years of my life, hands down. Uh, the Afghan people were amazing. Uh, the expats I worked with all over Europe and the U.S., primarily um, Europe and other areas, uh, were just as passionate and such deep believers in, in this project we were in to to help this country get out of this uh, the, out of this period of violence and into hope. And did pop. you have pushback from the Taliban? No, the Taliban were hiding basically when we were there. Because they had just been, their butts had just been kicked and they were out, they were hiding. I mean, it, you knew, you could see and you could feel like, oh, this is, this is a little shady area right here. But they weren't, what, what ended up happening where they started w- winning all these battles and they started taking over regions wasn't quite like that. I mean, they, they, they were still strong in certain regions, but, but the Americans had a lot of, had, had won essentially, you know, and so. Uh, they were in hiding a little bit back then. So I, I was really free to come and go however I wanted. I was walking down the streets. I was, yeah, I was really comfortable. Wow. What an incredible experience. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So I did that. And then I went to grad school in New York at Columbia and I did economic policy management because I really got interested in economic development. Like how do, how do we get people out of poverty? How do we get people living um, better, sustainable livelihoods? And then I went to work for the World Bank. So I was just doing the tour and all those big international organizations. And then, um, and then I landed kind of a dream job. I got this job with this tiny, like kind of small um, foundation called the Eurasia Foundation, they got the first kind of U.S. government funding for working on Iran ever, like in 30 years. And I was like, "All right." And that was a that was such a challenging and rewarding, I think, 12 years of my life. Uh, I gave it my all, and it gave me a ton back. I went from a staff of one to about almost 10 by the time I left and like, you know, dozens of contractors. We built online schools that are still alive today and very effective. And uh, it was it was really powerful what we did there. I'm really proud of that time. And then I was ready to build a new life for myself. I had I had poured myself so much into my career and into these causes i'm really passionately driven so if i'm aligned passion wise i'll just give it everything and then um it was time i kind of i really wanted a family and so it came time to, for me to have my son and around a couple a few years later i basically after living in la and kind of taking a break and a and a breath after all that i finally decided to have a child and i moved to nashville to to raise him to give birth to him raise him and then i had him literally like probably down the hall from where i was born even though i didn't plan any of that <laughs> so yeah I'm, that's what brought me back is to have my son as a woman moving through all these spaces i'm curious to know about the impact that had on you and because Let's be honest, in some of the things that you were working on, there was a strong hold of a patriarchal system. So how did you operate within those systems? Yeah, it's funny. I feel like I I just keep going to, to the patriarchal systems, like being back in Tennessee and, and rights just being taken away so much from, from women. I don't know. I mean, obviously, Iranian culture is very patriarchal. It's also very matriarchal. So maybe I was sort of trained in and comfortable around being around male power. Uh, my dad is a is an intellectual and he's a very powerful person and he and I have a great relationship. And so it, which was full of conversation. And so I just never felt intimidated and my sister is the same way I think we just never felt intimidated by male power because we were always in discourse with it. And he like dad taught me how to mow, he taught us how to mow the lawn at like eight or nine years old on our, on our, you know, he, I had to change a toilet. Like he just, he was adamant that I would never be seen as differently by myself, like from myself, you know what I mean? So I just never, I would walk into those rooms. I mean, it's a, it's a good point because at 24 to walk into the, a room with a bunch of warlords and just not skip a beat is interesting looking back, you know what I mean? Like, who was that girl? She just, and and that's just, I think that came from just a, a real comfort with, with male power. Like, I think probably because of, yeah, the way I was raised. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Walking to a room of warlords. Can you talk about that situation? Yeah. I mean, so once the transition government, you know, once 
the Taliban were kicked out, a transition government was put into place. And some of those people were offered positions because they had territories in this kind of warlord fiefdom that was going on, you know, before we moved in, where it was like this warlord had the South, this warlord had the North, this warlord had East, West, you know, and Taliban. And so as a, as a conciliatory measure, some of them were given departments to run, which is hilarious in terms of politics. And so if I, well, I would go with the minister of irrigation to a meeting with the minister of, I don't even remember what it was at the time. And he was a, he was known for having, you know, killed a lot of people or his team had killed a lot of people. So it was just like, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's the most bizarre thing and it teaches you so much about humans. And I think that leads you back to patriarchy in some way. Like so much of the time, these people can be charming and charismatic and conversational and in the same breath, either be passing rights that are going to harm people or actually physically harm people. And, and then you just are like open to the breath in one human and how complicated and how complex those, those conversations and relationships and advocating to those people can be internally and in the space between you. And as a, as a young woman, that was also complicated. That was also complicated. Um, as a young woman that spoke the language, that was also complicated. They weren't used to working with or for women. And so we were kind of men, women in their mind, but sometimes that didn't convey. And there were times where I know that people either thought I was up for grabs or I was there because I was someone's. Yeah. And, and none of that. Interesting thing that happens with powerful women is that there is an assumption that they spread their legs to get to their position in the West. Yeah, and less so, but in in there particularly, and I don't even want to say the East fully uh, because it's different depending on where you're at and what country you're at and what town or whatever. But in in those in some of those circles at that time, not to say how that's how it is in Afghanistan now, but at that time in some of those circles with some of those warlords, there was an assumption there for sure that that's that I was property. You know, and not to, I understand for some women being property kept them alive. And I think that they would probably choose life over. Yeah. And, and, and fed and housed and sure. And I get that too. So yeah, it was, somebody just drove by me just now outside and they were playing the song. Everybody wants to rule the world, which is so appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about what just happened in Nashville uh, after the shooting and wh- where you where you stepped in, what part of of your work was being done there. I've spent a lot of my time in Nashville working on local issues. So I'm the chair of the Human Relations Commission. I am the chair of Awake, which is Advocates for Women and Kids Equality. They are so th- and th- and these two roles are really interesting because one's very much at the city level. And one is very much at the state level. So Awake 
passes awake is a grassroots organization started in uh, this woman, Sarah Beth's kitchen, and they just start going at legislation and bills. And it's pretty impressive, but they pass bills uh, being volunteer based uh, for years and years since 2013. And then the commission works on basically the mission is long, but it, it, it's boiled down to the dignity of every Nashvilleian. So we look at equity issues and just the and and any issues that come up in the city, particularly in metro, but in general, that really impact the human dignity of Nashvilleians. So this can be housing, this can be workforce development, this can be some of these development projects that really displace people and displace resources that could be helping our city. Our, our city. This could be any kind of workforce issues in terms of toxic work culture and harassment, and and also just like any kind of racism or or biases there. So the commission's got its eye on a lot of things. It's led by Davy Tucker, who's incredible. And and so I've I've been working at both those levels. And and through that, making a lot of friends in these circles, in the activist circles and um, in the advocacy world, and just in general, um, among our council members. Uh, I did spend a lot of times advocating in the legislative session this year to support one of um, Awake's bills. So, so just in those in that work, I just started to know. Um, and having been born and raised here, I mean, there's a ton of people that are still here or that came back. I just my my community grew and grew and grew. And so, when the Covenant School shooting happened. I, and and obviously, like I am, I'm policy minded. Uh, I'm politically minded uh, and um, economically minded in terms of development. And so, I've been thinking, like all parents, like all all you know members of American society, been thinking about these shootings quite a bit, and looked at the laws and looked at this or that, and and ultimately have felt incredibly powerless. And the feeling of powerlessness is awful. I think I think it's one of the worst states for a human being, which like humans are meant to just kind of be out there in the world, following their purpose and 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 trying things out and growing and advancing and failing and adjusting. And when you don't have that sense of agency and you're powerless, it's awful. And then when the kids and the the educators were were killed just down the street from my son's pre-K where I'm on the mom group chat of my friends that are in that same pre-K. It's, it's, it's a feeling that it's just, oh, it's a feeling that's just unconscionable. Like you don't, you can't even really have that feeling as a, as a parent, um, as a mother, you're supposed to protect your child and you do anything to do that. It's, it's amazing to me what ends we will go to as, as, as uh, mothers to, to do that. And, and when you're feeling powerless, it's, it's antithetical to that. So anyways, everyone's trying to run, run to the school and just like bear hug their kid and just like, you know, take them away. And we're all, and everybody knows like, that's not the solution. And then, and then I, I just was like, let's channel this into some gathering together. And let's have kids there and let's have parents there and let's just channel this into a gathering and let's look at our legislators in the face. Let's look at them in the face. Not, not, not like attacking them, just look them in the eye 
because I can't understand why we are here. Even though intellectually, probably I can understand it. Some NRA is paying them. They have some attachment to the Second Amendment definition. Mip and Wesson is moving to Nash to Tennessee, not to Nashville, but to Tennessee also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a whole, and so there's that whole thing. And then I just thought, let's go look at them and say, but we're here too. And we're in pain. Like we're hurting and we're terrified. And I think that there have been voices that have made it sound like that anyone that's trying to protect kids or, or each other are just going to their churches or their grocery stores or walking down the street or whatever it is. That you can believe that people have the right to bear arms, but just not weapons that obliterate human beings at a rapid pace. It's just unnecessary for regular citizens. Right. And that's what that's what got real to me. And that's what I got present to. I have I have some great friends that have guns and are, are were raised in gun culture. And, and one of my posts, I said that like, we're not trying to eradicate a culture. Like, I don't know about that culture, but I understand and respect that it exists and people are raised in it. What we're trying to do is like, you know, when the Second Amendment was written, we didn't have AR-15s that just like reverberate in your body and explode your organs. You know what I mean? We didn't have that. We So let's talk about who needs that and when and why. I'm not interested in like getting rid of people's gun culture or whatever their norms are around that. The point is just that things have gone berserk in terms of the proliferation of guns. So I was feeling very powerless about that. And I just basically checked some organizations and some people that I knew. And I was like, are y'all doing something? Are y'all doing something? And nobody was doing something. So I was like, okay, let's just do it. Let's put it out there. And if it if it's not necessary, nobody wants it, like, that's fine. And And the intention was like, grieving together, love, and creating change. And it was parents and kids. And that thing circulated like, I don't know what through this city. I and just, the nation, okay. the nation on TikTok, it was going wild on Twitter. Everybody was trying to get the word out. The flyer was just, I was just seeing it being shared everywhere, everywhere. It was like, parents and kids rally in response to the covenant shooting was just like, the call that people's hearts were needing because they were both in pain, in fear, and and ready for something to change, like not at all ready to tolerate the status quo. It just went, it was three days, and we're just watching the signups go up, up, up. So first it's like a 500 person thing, fun. And then it's a thousand person thing, fun. And then it's the night before I'm like, okay, this is 2,000 to 2,500 people. And I, you know, I, I brought in my friends, I brought in my neighbor, I brought in Ruby, and I was like, y'all help me do this. And uh, the executive director of, of Awake, where I am a, a chair, and I, I was like, let's go. And everyone took their own thing. Ruby Ruby organized, Ruby and this woman, Leah Light, organized the musicians, which were incredible and exquisite. Like, shout out to all those musicians that came out and sang and sang their hearts out. The students, I've, and if, if you looked at my Instagram in the three days before it's people were laughing at me, but I literally would just like post, I need walkie talkies. Okay. Students, if you want to come message me and then they would all DM me. And then I'd create this little 
a group, you know, a thread. And then I'd be like, okay, who, who are y'all? What do you want to do? And okay, don't, don't break any rules to come here. Oh, we got our teachers to say we could get a note. I mean, the amount of uh, interpreters message me, do you have interpreters? Are you doing um, ASL? Oh no, I didn't think about, okay, let's get on that. Like it was crowdsourced. It was a crowdsourced movement. It was the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. Nashville shows up. We've seen it in tornadoes. We've seen it in floods. Nashville shows up and they showed up. And this time they showed up in like the deepest heart. That day was, was magical. It was spiritual. It was beautiful. And of course it rocked. It ended up rocking history in this state because Justin and Justin and Gloria took to the well and changed the direction of everything um, with that. But in, it was it was really beautiful. Like I talked to ten students, and that organized hundreds of students to come. People in. are fed up. They're tired of being soaked in blood, and that's not even hyperbole. It's just as when I saw you know there was something going around social media, and it was a list of all the schools, just the schools, not counting groceries, not counting churches, not counting just domestic violence situations. It was solely schools. The list was so long hundreds i mean it's sick we're sick we are i I just keep saying like they're under a spell those leaders are under a spell money they're under the it's the same as the warlords you know it's money they and it's power and it's putting your heart in the wrong place and as long as people look to power as their heart space will never get anywhere. Yeah. And I, I mean, I am present to this thing that has happened here in the last 20 years or 30 years, which is like the second amendment means everyone can have any gun that they want. But that's not really what it was written about. Not only that, but our founding fathers called it a, li- a living, breathing rewritable, reworkable work. It was meant to be reassessed every, you know, 10 to 15 years. And I think people forget that. And they do get so caught up in the, oh, everyone's coming to take, nobody's coming for your guns. I was raised in a gun family. I was raised in a gun culture family. But I also understand that no civilian needs that kind of weaponry they just don't are they fun to shoot yes do you need it no if it means not killing children on mass and teachers on mass and clergy on you know what i mean it's it's like start thinking more with the logic of it do you really need this thing why do you have it it makes you feel powerful that's why you have it there's there's something going on around it and i am sure it's 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 an indoctrination from lobbyists and stuff like that but there's sure. definitely i've tried to really put my feet in the shoes of these people because i really want to deeply understand what's it's going on here also they think that there is a big conspiracy that they that they are going to be attacked and that someone's going to invade their home and you know, and I think they think the government is going to do that. But the truth be told that if there is a military on the side of a government, you don't stand a chance. I don't care what kind of weapons you have. You know, Joe, Joe Smith, understandably wanting to protect his family from a government who is storming his house in his mind, 
I appreciate the effort. You're not, you don't stand a chance. Just don't. These are highly trained people. The government, you know, has military that's highly trained. Joe Blow may think that they're a great shot, but you're just not gonna, it's just not. And the thing is their ego gets all tied up. I mean, I've had these conversations. I have friends who are very much like, they're not taking my guns. I want to be able to shoot whatever I want. I've got bazookas, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, they're just, they got drones. You're gone. They're gonna be like, oh, there's gonna be a guy playing a video game and your house is gone. So just like get out of that fantasy land. It's not what you think it is. And in fact, it's just, it's just hurting innocent lives. That's, it's pretty awful. That's my big speech. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I think it's important, you know, we have these, I have these calls with, um, so, so the big thing is that this rally not only broke this kind of steel grip that the, the supermajority had on our state because we, we like something happened at that rally that was powerful just in the presence of everyone just being in the presence of each other in the physical presence of each other, which I think is really important, particularly post COVID something happens when you're with each other and also everything that's happened since it's powerful and it's stunning. And, and when I see volunteers come and want to work and want to talk to legislators and they are so, I have been so impressed with the citizenry, like they're experts, you know what I mean? And, and they're and like experts in communication, experts in law, experts in research, experts, like put them to the job of writing the bill and the bill will be written well. And that's, what's so ironic about this. They might be outsmarting their leadership. Not they might, they are outsmarting their leadership. Absolutely. There was something too I read. One of the legislatures said, I, in my entire uh, career, I've maybe had a hundred phone calls. And over the past, whatever it's been now, two weeks, thousands and thousands of calls. People, like you said, are waking yes. up. And I think there's yes. a lot of power in what you said about looking our leaders, quote unquote, our, our politicians in the eye and holding them accountable for their actions. And that's that's been sort of in my in my mind since all this, I've just been thinking so much about when you don't have the vote because it's either been gerrymandered or the state's under the spell of like Fox News and indoctrination, you still have your voice. And that's what we learned. We still have our voice. We might not have the votes in Sumner County or parts of Rutherford County or whatever it is, but our voice, what we came to believe after 11 years of a supermajority is that we have nothing and people still tried. We all still tried, but, but, you know, one of the things I said in my speech is like, please be in these halls after this, because I'm in these halls and they're pretty empty. They're pretty empty. And people took that and they went with it. And there have been meetings and meetings and calls and meetings. And it's gorgeous to see because the Those people, people work are, for us. That's the thing that, that they try and let you, they mesmerize you into forgetting. That's what got construed over these years is that you start to think you are working either around them or for them. And it's like, wait a second, it's a democracy. You're working for me. And so when, it, and when Justin and Justin were 
um, expelled. It was like, bro, they were working for us. And what you were doing was silencing them. And they, and, and in all honesty, I had, I had seen those committee meetings. I'd been around, they were silencing them all session. And he, and Justin speaks to that, uh, Justin Jones, but, but that was the thing that has changed and it's still going. We have 9 PM zoom calls with mothers that have never, ever been to a protest, which to me is notable given all that we've been through since 2016, but never been to a protest because Nothing matters like your child. Nothing matters like your child. And even if I'm a Dem and you're a Republican, we don't care. We want our kids alive and we will align on that. And that was the other beautiful experience of that day is there was all kinds of people there that were aligned on saving our kids. And I think that that's what's happened. That's why we found our voice because we are finally unified. That's the other big thing I realized, and I know it's so obvious, but when we are united and divided, particularly as we're online and not in our physical proximity because of COVID, when we are divided, the power consolidates a lot easier. When we are united, the power starts to, like the guy said, he had never gotten so many calls in his life, right? Because it was all divisive and partisan and whatever it was. But now, everybody's on board. This is my other big argument of why the government wants to take away things like Twitter and TikTok is because they know that that's the voice of the people and they're going to guise it under, oh, China spying. It's not that. They don't want it because it's the fastest way to get the information out. That spread like wildfire. To whom? The young people, young people who are just sick of your bullshit. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're fed up. It's so fascinating. I just read an article today. Um, one of the January 6th, a fireman who was sentenced, he actually went to a culty programming because he realized that he had been, Oh, wow. It was a really fascinating well, read good for him. Yeah. I, I mean, that's what I'm saying. There's an indoctrination going on. Yeah. It's very clear. And so you know, there, there's even there's even um, research. They pay people to stop watching Fox News. Have you seen that? I have. And, and their views balanced out over time, and they became less extreme in their views, like within a month. Yeah, it's very it's it's not hard to hypnotize people. It's not hard to get people into a fever pitch. It really isn't. It's the brain is very plastic. It's very easy to manipulate. And I, I don't think people really understand. And of course, now they're saying, oh, well, yeah, but everybody on the left, they're groomers and they just want everyone to be transgender. <laughs> it's just, listen to what you're saying. That's, it's just such a non-argument. It's it's so wackadoodle to me. And again, the but party that that's- the patriarchy. I think that really the trans, yeah. all of that stuff, it feels like it's personal to them. The way it that they do it. It feels like being in Tennessee during this session. I'm just like, what is going on with these guys? Like, why is this so deep for them? Because they find transgender women attractive, probably. Or here's the other thing, too. I have this, and I know I'm not the only one with this theory, but I think there's such a huge anger over folks that are just living their lives openly and for folks that spend their lives closed off and aren't willing to touch those places in themselves or have been told it's wrong for religious reasons or whatever that they have this deep loathing for themselves and for anyone who gets to live their life out loud because they can't i interviewed a guy once who's bisexual and he talked about 
how growing up he was super homophobic and participated oh, in these homophobic slurs. He beat up kids that were gay. He'd call people, you know, the F word, all this stuff. And he said afterward, you know, after he recognized himself and came to terms with who he was, he realized that all his self-loathing just manifested outward. Wow. I mean, that, so there's some, that's, you feel that there's something emotionally going on here with this. It's just to fixate so much. It feels like either there are desires that are repressed, you know, as what keeps, I mean, I don't know, but, but it it just, it does feel like, otherwise you just wouldn't care. Although I think we do know because a lot of these people who are screaming at the top of their lungs about pedophilia turned out that they are pedophile, you know, they get caught with, their videos or, you know, molesting kids or the people that are screaming about, you know, anti-LGBTQ plus, they are found in bathrooms or some sex tape, you know, whatever comes out. It's like, we see why you're so pissed and, and screaming because you're right. Anyone that is very grounded in themselves and who they are, and you just don't just care. live your life. You just don't care. And so there's something, and I understand like, you know, I understand kids are really fluid with their gender right now. And sometimes it's very trendy. And I have plenty of uh, friends whose kids are experimenting back and forth and all around and changing names. I mean, within months and changing back and, and I get it. I get that that can be like, but that was the goths for us in the eighties. I was thinking the exact same thing. I was thinking that was like, I mean, not to say that gender is the same, but no, it's, of course not. It's not, but it, Sometimes it's experimentation. But it's identity. It's identity yeah. away from what the social norm is. And, and I think that's actually the healthiest thing a young person can do is to explore who they are. And then as they are exploring who they are, they may shift through different things and then settle on something or they may not. And the thing is, is they should have the freedom to realize who they are. No one should hurt kids. Of course, no one should hurt animals. I believe that strongly, but I don't think it's hurting a kid to let them have pink hair and call themselves they, them, if they want to, if that's how they resonate. But if it keeps your kid from killing themselves, let them be who they are. Yeah. It's a, it's a trust. I think it's a, it's a self-trust and a trust in other issue. And um, if you come from high control cultures, yeah. societies, and and religious groups, then sure trust is like not in that direction it's kind of up and down it's well not. jesus was a buddhist right so basically i feel like if you bring jesus and christ consciousness into it it's just live and let live was his mantra you know so i know i'll get some emails on that but look into it jesus was very much into sort of eastern philosophy love love everyone nobody is less than you know <laughs> We're all just trying our best, that kind of thing. I'm curious how you feel about people that have been comparing what happened in Nashville to January 6th. I think that that whole that like I think that whole attempt to distract from gun control uh, has completely blown up on itself. Um, it was funny. I mean, it was it was silly for a while. They were really trying to go for it. I don't know if they were on. Sexton and folks were on conservative radio and, and it was like, Hey, let's go with this. Let's like, let's, let's lean into this. But there was just so little there that it some, seemed like they just couldn't even, they couldn't go very far with it. I, I mean, I personally, I guess, cause you know, I, I was organizing the whole thing. I got tagged and I think, 
I don't know, a hundred videos at least, at least. And it's just like, there was, there was so many, so much footage of what actually happened there that it would have just been impossible to prove in any kind of way that it was violent or, uh, or injurious to anyone or negative. Bunch of kids singing. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I think they like tried to go there yeah. and then the expulsion thing. And so they, they were just trying to find their angle on this and it just was a complete. It backfired. PR implosion on the party, on the GOP. Like all they did was, was like raise millions of dollars for the Democratic Party and, and um, get Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, like a hundred thousand or more followers on Twitter. It was, but they were trying to go there and I just was like, let's go. Like everybody, I have all the footage saved on my, on my phone. People have sent me hundreds of videos. So let's go. Like if anybody's got any corner footage that shows insurrection, even just like touching a piece of the building inappropriately, if we have anything, let's see it. And it just, just didn't happen. And it didn't happen for the rest of the week. The kids were out so respectful, so respectful, so peaceful, so civil the whole week after that. And I just like really acknowledge them for being the leaders that they are really everybody. And they kept their cool when that one representative asked them what kind of gun they would rather be shot with. So Lambert is the leader of the house. And I, (laughs) but I think that's really telling about the perspective. Okay. Whether it's an NRA infused perspective or not, he's saying that we get to have all guns in the world. He's saying everybody gets to have a gun. So what do you want me to do? Limit the kind of gun, you know? And actually I'd say, yeah, like you can look at the the data on an AR-15 entering your body. Uh, that's a, I'd, 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 you know, if I had to choose between a handgun and that, I'll go handgun. But what an insensitive thing to say to a bunch of students. It just fired up a whole new wave of activists. Uh, activists and leaders. Yeah. These are all our future leaders, man. They're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere to safe to go to. Tell me a state that you can move to that you're going to be safe from this. There is like, no one. That was the thing is I was under the belief that private schools were safer. And then it hits the smallest, most, you know, in the, in the nicest neighborhood, very Christian school. And then you're like, no, nowhere is safe. And the thing too, about the argument and I know we're going way off topics here and, and stuff, but the idea that, oh, an armed guard at your school protects you, there are mass shootings at military bases. So, you know, it- I'm not an armed guard person. Uh, I, I've talked to moms and groups, uh, conservative groups that that like it. I don't I don't. It doesn't make a difference, though. That's the thing I'm saying. It, it, it's some data shows that it increases injury and in, in casualties. Right. I armed guards do not give me any sense of security. How stressful is that for a kid to walk past an armed guard? So what's coming? What's the future for you? I'm glad you're on the planet. This is wonderful. And I'm glad you are helping to create more of you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, We're going to keep going. I have been talking to the folks that follow me on my pages and, and organizing and stuff. And and it's clear everyone is committed. They they like the way that it's just like messy and let's go and spontaneous. And I'm going to keep going. And I'm part of a coalition of incredibly or, incredible organizations here. 
And we're on to all kinds of things. Making Nashville and Tennessee work for everyone is important. And so, and there are great uh, government leaders that are on that page too. So I'm going to keep going. Um, this is who I am. This is my passion. And and I'm in it for the long run. And I think that we have cracked that steel cage and we are going to just keep on chipping and cracking more. Um, and I think we're going to be successful. Has anyone threatened you at all in this work? Yeah. Internet sleuthing and sharing. Oh, she's this or that or the other on Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Tell people how they might find you. Oh, um, Miriam Abelfazli writer on Instagram. If there's an underscore in between all three words. It's not that easy because my last name's hard, but we all get to learn how to how to write that last name. So Miriam Abelfazli, uh, Twitter um, underscore in between each, and then Mariak, uh, M A R Y A C K on Twitter. Um, and I've got a Substack you can find there as well. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. So, uh, love to, love to engage with most folks, especially folks all around the country, because, um, we need y'all's eyes on us. It helps a lot when people are paying attention to what we've been seen as a lost state and it's just not true. We are diverse and informed and active citizenry and, um, we're arm in arm and every other state that has a super majority or is struggling with, we're all struggling with, with some of this stuff, this consolidation of power that's happened at the Supreme court level and below. So I think being unified is the way that we do this. Despite gerrymandering, um, our voice is still incredibly powerful. Yeah. And if people want to reach out to you also, anyone listening who wants to know how to do this in your town. Yes. Uh, yes. They're certainly the folks to watch. If if your heart's in the right place, that shit will just fire on its own. It will catch fire on its own. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. It was great talking to you. You too. And please keep me updated. Uh, You're always welcome on the show. If you ever want to come and talk about anything you're working on, uh, you have an open door. I hope to be reporting on a bunch of stuff as time passes. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.